Welcome to Dwight and Shining Armor, the Sunken Kingdom, the behind-the-scenes podcast about everything Dwight, quarantine edition. I'm Josh Breslow, and I play Yakopo. Today we're talking about the season three premiere, Wishy Washy Part 2, written by Leanne H. Adams and Brian J. Adams, directed by Jeff Hunt, guest starring Evan Hofer, Abby Cobb, Kanoa Goo, and Nate Sears. As always, we have a blanket spoiler alert, so if you haven't watched season three, episode one yet, stop whatever you're doing, put that prince's earlobe on ice, and watch Wishy Washy Part 2 either on BYU TV or at BYUtv.com slash Dwight. And a little extra word. We usually record the podcast in the wonderful podcast booth at the Comedy Store in West Hollywood. However, due to the coronavirus quarantine, we are recording this and future episodes from our respective homes via Skype. We very much appreciate your understanding regarding the audio quality, and we'll be back to our usual sound as soon as we're able. Now, a quick recap. When we last left our heroes, Dwight had been taken prisoner by Regana because of his skills with a wish turtle, and Greta, Baldrick, Clodwig, and Hexla had set out to save him. Regana puts a spell on Dwight to do as she commands, trapping him until she gets all the superficial wishes from the wish turtle her heart desires. Meanwhile, Hexla leads the gang in tracking them down, but when they find Dwight and Regana at the Witch's Inn, they must contend how to free Dwight from Regana's happy-to-oblige spell and her turn-everything-that-crosses-her-trap-into-ash spell, and on top of all of that, they need to finally put an end to Regana herself, all while making sure not to befall the same fate as Dwight. Now that everyone's been brought up to date, let's get to our guests. Back with us are the creators and showrunners of Dwight and Shining Armor, Brian J. Adams and Leanne H. Adams. Hey, guys. Hi, Hello, Josh. Josh. It's great. It's great to be with you, but not be with you. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, there's more. You all know her as Hexala, the witch who will never admit she has a heart, but she totally does. Danielle in the opening credits, Bazooty. Ah, you noticed. Of course, I was I delighted by that. I was very. Thank you, guys. <laughs> of course. It's exciting stuff. And for the first time on our show, you know. Dwight's kidnapper, Baldrick's former lover, and Hexla's greatest frenemy, Regana. Abby Cobb is with us. Hey, Abby. Yay! Hi! It's good to be here. It's great to have you. Welcome, everyone. Uh, let's, uh, let's just jump into this if everybody's ready. Let's talk about the complexities of not just coming back from the show's first extended break and shooting, but specifically picking up right where we left off. As showrunners and actors... What goes into making sure everything feels like no time has passed? That's a great question. I'll jump in first. Um, so this uh, this break was especially challenging uh, between season two and season three. Um, we not only had several months um, between the shooting of, of these two episodes, but we changed the state in which we <laughs> were shooting the episodes, like not the emotional state, the <laughs> physical state. We went from Utah <laughs> to Georgia. Um, and we rebuilt uh, all, or built anew all of our sets. Uh, one particular challenge for us was uh, Regana's wardrobe. Um, Regana's wardrobe in Wishy Washy One was loaned to us from the Utah Opera House. It's a beautiful, beautiful costume that we got from the Utah Opera House and uh, felt very lucky to get it for Wishy Washy Part One. Then we end up in Atlanta and we want to go directly into Wishy Washy Two. And we're nowhere near the Utah Opera House, and we're not sure how willing they would be to send it to us. Well, thankfully, 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 they were very obliging when we reached out to them and explained the situation, uh, and were willing to to put it in a box and ship it to us uh, so that we could have Regana's fantastic um, wardrobe remain consistent from 
from one episode to the other. So that's just one example of some of the complexities of uh, trying to keep consistency from season to season. But when you're moving um, in locations, it, it can get very tricky. So not only did we change states, uh, we also changed our production partner. So uh, after we finished Wishy Washy Part 1, we had to pack everything that was in Utah up into, I think it was six semis full of stuff and move it to Georgia and you know, restart the, all of the business side of everything with our new production partner, Swirl Films, uh, in Georgia. So it was uh, you know, a lot of logistics to, to wrangle between, between starting, finishing one episode and starting the next one. All the props and everything, because you can imagine they were all packed into boxes that were packed into semis. And some of the stuff, by the way, was thrown away, we found out as we were unpacking all those semis. Uh, and then we were looking for you know, all, all of the, uh, the stuff. And this was not just for this particular episode. This is when we rebuilt uh, Greta's house and all the rest of it. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, luckily, we did find her throne chair. <laughs> it was in, insane. And luckily, we had a team of talented people to help us sort it out. I mean, that's incredible. What, and what about for you, uh, Danielle and Abby? Uh, you know, you take a bunch of time off and you got to pick up emotionally, mentally, exactly where you left off. I was most worried about fitting into those jeans again. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> but those jeans made quite a stir on BYU TV. I don't know oh, if they yeah. were cow, if they were skunk. I feel like they were a little foreshadowing going on with the skunk. And what about for you, Abby? I mean, you did one episode of the show, took months off. Yeah. And then came back. So you, you didn't have, you know, like Danielle had months of this character that you'd been doing it was just right. this one off and then you were back what was that like for you I well I actually I was on a couple other shows in between that were very very wonderfully different and just the whole spectrum of of um comedy drama all that all that jazz and I forgot a lot of things because um the finale hadn't uh aired yet so I I didn't remember there was a couple things that the director would come to me and be like that laugh that laugh you did would and I was like I don't remember the laugh <laughs> so actually Brian um, worked hard to get me a copy of some of the scenes so I could watch and listen to the cadence that I had chosen and the um, the rhythm and the pitch and all of those things so I played it in my headphones. Uh, for a few hours um, before each scene to to remember what I had done and then slip back into it. And Abby, I can relate to that because between my first episode and my second episode was a long stretch of time. And I had to go back and listen to the first one just to make sure I had the accent and the cadence right. It was the right. same, same deal. I very much relate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so great that we record these things. It's like, <laughs> I, mean, I believe this is the most... Hexla driven episode since uh, Lotions and Potions, the episode, not the shop. Um, she's the hero of the episode. Dwight is the damsel in distress. Regana's the villain, which we'll talk about as well in a moment. What is prep like for an episode like this for you? Do you just command F and find your name in the script? I've heard actors do that. I don't know <laughs> any that do that, but I've heard people do it. Um, what's it. What's it like to prep for an episode that you are driving? You know, when I first, so I don't command F, I read and I, and I make notes. I'm very like learned and I'm like a copious note taker. Um, but when I first, I mean, it made sense that this, that wishy-washy part two, this is where it was going. I mean, the number one person 
in on the planet and in the cosmos, as it were, to Hexala is is Baldric. Spoiler. Spoiler, people, but it's true. And even though she doesn't want people to know, um, well, for, first and foremost, my frenemy is Ragana. Ragana has taken Dwight. Dwight has become a part of this hodgepodge family that's happened with these, you know, unlikely cast of characters who are now some like a semblance of family is happening. And most importantly, she has the wish turtle. So there's a lot of reasons why Hexala is sort of going toward getting Regana. There's a lot there. She's my longtime arch frenemy. And, uh, and I don't like losing. So the preparation was sort of simple when it came to this being sort of an alignment with who Hexala's been. What it did give me an opportunity to do is to become the Marvel DC superhero character that I've always dreamt of being. Because thanks to Brian and Leanne, they let me do my own stunts. And so when I saw the opportunity, which by the way, a testament to them, in Wishy Washy Part 1, there was all this talk of, you know, handshakes and may your cauldron never simmer, brew ever bubble. And I thought it was a really great opportunity to add a lot of physical <clears throat> movement to this. A little bit of a dance, a little bit of a hand gesture, something mysterious. So Abby and I were able to play a lot with what those, what that handshake would look like, what the spell would look like, and, and really create, as Leanne was talking about, this culture of witches and, and the way in which they cast their spells, the way in which they greet each other, the way in which they protect and get what they want. So the opportunity to jump off tables, to, you know, do cartwheels, to get all my ballet training out there with my chenets until I fall into the ground was an actual dream come true. And I, and I loved, I loved having an opportunity to, uh, to really spearhead an episode and really show people what Hexel is made of when it comes to someone that she loves uh, the risk of losing someone that she cares about. That's a great answer. I noticed that when we catch up with Regana, she seems a bit more off than when we <laughs> first met her. You know, a bit like a child on Christmas with a new gift she hadn't anticipated and can't wait to try out. <laughs> what was it like uh, creating an arc for Regana just within these two episodes and over so much time? Oh, it was only fun. I, gosh, I love acting so much. It's such a joy to me. And I can hands down say Ragana is the most fun I've ever had with a character on set, with a crew, with a cast. It's um, unlike any others because it was really just playing and with such fun language. I didn't have to fight anybody about content or about um, the integrity of my character. Like it was all like it was all so well done that I just got to go in and play. Um, something I think is fun anyway, even if it is a drama, um, is to have your character make positive choices, even if they are a villain or even if they are a troublemaker. And by positive, I mean they're enjoying it. So instead of full-on argument of conflict, they're smiling and they're laughing and they're teasing and they're playing. Um, instead of a mustache kind of twirling villain, I think it's fun if the villain just like has a total blast with every evil choice. Um, so I just went with that. I just went with that and did what was in the script and played off of my, um, my peers. And that's what you see on the screen. I think that's such a great way to say it because yes, if you were a villain who was dour all the time, you'd be a villain that wasn't enjoying what they were doing or were maybe against what they were doing. But a lot of the villains on this show 
think that what they're doing is completely correct and valid oh, yeah. and what they should be doing. And so it, it, it does, it brings that joy. And I, I love that way of describing it. I totally agree. Leanne, long, long ago, when I shot my first episode as Yukopa, we talked about how you look at protagonists versus antagonists mm-hmm. in the structure of an episode. And it forever changed how I look at episodic structure. Would you mind sharing your wisdom with our listening audience as it pertains to Regana and Hexla in this episode? Sure. Yeah. So I remember that conversation very well, um, uh, talking about uh, a, a structural protagonist and a structural antagonist, um, which has really helped um, me in in writing in general, but especially with this show where we have new characters that come into the show all of the time, and many of them become the structural protagonists of an episode. So the the way to look at it, you know, broadly speaking in the show Dwight and Shining Armor, Dwight is the protagonist um, because his choices and his actions are, in the general sense, the ones that are propelling the action of the show. However, Dwight is almost never the protagonist of an episode. Um, I, that's maybe not uh, it, it, totally true, but but many, many episodes, um, Dwight isn't the structural protagonist. Dwight's not the one whose um, who's objective is driving the action and whose um, actions are forcing others to react to him. So if you look at uh, an example, if you look at lotions and potions, for example, is, is a, a, a really good example of a, of a structural protagonist. Um, that episode um, is driven by Hexala. She enters the scene. She has an objective. She needs to get that finger. We understand her motivation for it. And everyone else is reacting to her and just trying to stop her. So all of our heroes are, in fact, the antagonists to her objective. It's a pretty weak objective for your hero to be trying to stop someone. That makes them, by definition, the antagonist to someone else's objective. So in this in this uh, um, episode, in fact, both in Wishy Washy 1 and 2, uh, Regana is the structural protagonist of those episodes. Uh, she comes into the world with an objective, and everyone else is running around trying to, to stop her, they're reacting to her, but she's the one that is making things happen. Uh, and once you once you look at a, a a story that way and are able to let go of whatever preconceived ideas you have about who needs to be the hero, uh, a hero is is a very different thing than protagonist. <laughs> Your hero might be the character you relate to the most, or the character you most um, want to see win or the one who has the most noble intentions, but your hero might not be your protagonist. Um, and, and that's certainly true in these two episodes, Wishy Washy 1 and 2. Regana, who has the most evil objectives, most evil intentions and motivations, is really a wicked witch. Um, her objectives are the most strong, and she's the one that is causing everything else to happen. Um, and everybody else is just reacting. She's the one that kidnapped Dwight because she wants those wishes. And everyone else is just trying to stop her. <laughs> so in this case, Regana is our structural protagonist. And Hexala is our structural antagonist. And when you are able to break it down that way, um, it helps you to, to keep uh, your structure nice and strong. Um, how is Regana driving toward her objective? How is Hexala standing in her way? And then at the end, 
what does that climax look like uh, and who ultimately wins. Um, your, your protagonist doesn't have to win. <laughs> um, that's another, I think, thing that's difficult to learn. Your protagonist can lose. So your protagonist can be a bad guy and lose to the hero uh, at the end. So it's, it's just a way that um, might be helpful to storytellers uh, to abandon your idea that your hero has to be the protagonist, that your villain has to be the antagonist, and look at instead at whose objective is making everything happen. And that person then becomes your protagonist. Uh, and for this, for this episode, it's, it's absolutely Regana. Um, and then, uh, and then Hexala is a really strong antagonist to, to Regana. I think that's invaluable advice. And anyone who's writing that is a writer that wants to be a writer, I think that is a masterclass on how to write episodic television. Uh, I think right. it's so valuable. So thank you for sharing it with everybody because it blew my sure. mind when you first told me about it way back when. So let's talk about the wish turtle. Was it difficult at all to shoot those super close-ups of his little tiny face? <laughs> you know, we've had a lot of animals on our show. In fact, our uh, former line producer used to uh, disparagingly call our show Dr. Doolittle 2. Uh, so uh, we've, we've had a lot of animals. And I have to say, that turtle was the easiest to work with of all of them. It was such a good little turtle. Uh, it, he would just sit there and, and open and close his mouth uh, and do all sorts of cute things. It was really easy just to hold the turtle uh, and do what we needed to do. There, there were two tricks with it. One, we had a turtle stunt double that was not living uh, and it was it was a, a plastic turtle or whatever. Uh, and so anytime we were doing anything remotely dangerous, like shoving the turtle in Dwight's pocket, uh, we used the, the plastic turtle. Uh, and then interesting, uh, we at the very end when Dwight sets the turtle free at the turtle pond, if you notice, you don't actually see Dwight put the turtle in in the water uh, because that got really complicated. Obviously, we didn't want to hurt the turtle, uh, and there are a lot of regulations <laughs> uh, when it comes to you know doing stuff like that. So we we uh, we just suggest that the turtle was placed in the water. The turtle in reality was not placed in the water, uh, so that was one complication. And, and also, uh, our cinematographer Banks Johnson. Uh, is actually one of his specialties is really uh, tight close-ups on small things. He spent a lot of time uh, shooting toy commercials, little tiny toys. And so he has a, a special lens. We call it the snorkel lens uh, that I believe is what he shot that, that turtle on. If you, if you look at it, it's like uh, it, the lens is, it's something like it can, can get up to like five feet long. It's a huge lens. And by the way, it costs like a quarter of a million dollars, that one lens. Um, and yeah, uh, Banked owns that lens, and if if memory serves, that's the lens we shot that on. So um, it, it, when you see little toy commercials and the toy is like an inch high and it takes up the whole screen, you have to sh uh, use a, a lens like that. Another fun fact: there's only like two of those lenses in Los Angeles, and Bank hap Bank happens to own one. Uh, so I, I believe that's the lens we shot the turtle on. So it it was great for uh, for close-ups of that cute little turtle face. Wow. I mean, my main takeaway from that is if anybody needs a quarter million dollars break into Bank Johnson's house. <laughs> and, yeah. So let's talk about the big thing. Let's talk about the witches brawl. Danielle, Abby, tell me everything about what that was like. <laughs> 
Danielle worked so hard. Her stunt moves were so cool. It was so cool to watch her thrive. Doing all of her, all of her own stunts. She was awesome. It was my dream come true. Like I said, I grew up wanting to be Wonder Woman, and this was my moment to shine. Um, and, it, and and again, to Brian and Leanne, and I think Abby would agree when she was talking about the freedom that we have on this show. I mean, I was just coming up with wacky moves, jumping off tables, jumping off trampolines, doing the witches brawl, and was so cool because these were just inventions that happened. And Abby was a part of you know creating that whole little handshake and dance we did for the witches brawl, and then to see later how special effects added like the potion and and the light and the and the powder that the, the steam that came through the hands it was just it felt really it just felt really collaborative um i am very girly which works for hexala but i'm also a bit of a tomboy because i grew up with a brother who was trying to kill me the second i came home from the hospital so <laughs> i've had a lot of a lot of i always say that he loves that it, 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 i had a lot of like you know climbing trees and trying to prove myself and that was one thing that i thought was interesting when Abby or when Regana says, you know, you've lost your touch, Hexy. Well, that's all Hexala needed to know. And she upped the Annie and I was jumping off the table. And what I also love so much about the witches brawl was how political it was. Who are you putting your bet on? Oh, I'm going to put it on 10 crowns or a witch's, uh, what is it, an earlobe, a prince's earlobe on Regatta, and then really quickly switch it right over to Hexala. I mean, it really did feel like a political debate, in my opinion. Yeah, I just love the fantasy of it. Having everyone in costumes, it feels like a period piece. It's so fantastical that it's real joy um, to to work on a, a set with a production value like this rather than two people talking at a coffee shop and you're wearing clothes from 2020. You know, it's <laughs> such a different world. It's play. It's fun. And I, I loved it. So fun. Abby yeah. has one of the best moments, by the way, when you throw... The death grip? It's amazing. You look so amazing in that moment. Oh, gosh. It's fun. It's fun. It's the most fun I've ever had pretending to kill someone. You can't win, Hexala. Oh, yeah. And why is that? Because I know your weakness. Baldrick's poor heart. Hmm. Shall we call it a draw, Hexla? <laughs> you might still be able to save him. Let's talk about that death grip. Uh, we have the final moment of the witch's brawl, which falls into classic hero-villain territory. The villain who cares for no one but her own plump lips always has the strategic upper hand. It reminds me of Superman working overtime to save the people of Metropolis when he needs to be fighting Lex Luthor. Regana doesn't need to defeat Hexla. She needs to exploit Hexla's weakness, which, of course, is Hexla's love for Baldrick. Was this always the plan in the writing process? Yeah, this from from the moment that Regana shows up, uh, this has always been a catfight uh, between these two witches. Uh, and it, it's it's a match to see who's still got it, who's the more powerful of the two witches. And it, it's kind of like when you uh, 
when you go back to a high school reunion and everyone tries to look their best and everyone tries to look like they're the most successful. It's it's definitely a lot of that. And so this was uh, this was about that from the very beginning between Hexala and and Regana. And and you're right. Uh, you know, in, in a relationship, whoever cares the most usually loses. And and Hexala, as soon as Regana finds out how much Hexala cares for Baldrick, she knows she's got her. Uh, and and that's you know, she's found her weakness, and and she obviously immediately exploits it. And Abby, after murdering the love of Hexala's very long life, Regana offers a draw. Does she care more about destroying Hexla's life than actually taking it from her? Also, what happened to Regana as a child? Why is she like this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. That's such a good question. Um, you know, I think as far as what happened to her to make her the way she is, I feel like it's such a beautiful picture of the redeeming value of community because Hexla should be a Regana, if we want to call her that. But because she has community that lifts her up, calls her out, does life with her, kind of speaks into her identity, it changes her. It changes her want-tos. And so I think it's a great lesson of like, I want friends like that. I want to be a friend like that. And if we're our worst, we lean into the selfish stuff if we don't have community around us. So I think Regana just doesn't have good friends. Her, everybody's out for themselves in her world. And she probably just didn't have any good examples of what authentic friendship looks like. So I don't know. Maybe maybe she'll learn that lesson in whatever world she uh, she went to when she got crushed. Or did she? Or did she? I think I think I saw her escape before she got crushed. But I I just want to say I love that answer. I think about community and how we develop as people all the time based on having contact with people like us and not like us. I love that answer. I think it's extremely important, especially yeah. right now. I mean, can you imagine if she had Greta and Dwight alongside her for her adventures? She would be different. She would value different things and pursue different things. But she doesn't have that, so. I think that that maybe is why. I always thought of Hexala and Regana as only children. And I love that answer too, Abby, because you're right. Like it took Hexala, it takes her a while to start to open up and trust these people. You know, because I think that when you care, it's when you can allow yourself to be vulnerable and to trust. And I and I always imagine Hexala, you know, having that guard up because of something in her past. But, you know, the way that you play Regana is so devilishly having a good time. It reminds me of that only child who got all the toys, everything she ever wanted, and no brother or sister or community, as you said, to share with and understand what that was like. Beautiful. Yeah. So not to sound heartless, but I'm a big fan of this moment when Baldrick lays dying. The reality of the situation <laughs> hits everyone hard. Hexla has seen a lot of loss in her centuries, but this perhaps hurts the most. Dwight and Greta, however, have the reaction of kids. And it's a reminder that they're both children who have already lost their parents and now their father figure is dying again. After an episode of magic and witches brawls and Clodwig turning into a rope, this moment grounds our heroes and stories in stark reality. So what goes into designing a moment like this? So we had been building to this moment um, really from the beginning of Wishy Washy One. We, we constructed these two episodes pretty much together um, and knew where we were heading with it. We knew that, that um, 
Baldrick was going to be the one ultimately in the most real danger. Um, and only because he was the one that that got caught in the crossfire between these two witches. So, so we had been building toward it, but we wanted to show, um, uh, we wanted to let things get really serious and really real in that moment and see how the different characters would react to it and see some honesty in characters that are usually very guarded. Uh, so from Hexala, we see just tremendous honesty as all of those, those pretenses come down um, in, in this moment that, Baldrick is dying. Uh, uh, she is very focused on finding the solution. She's the one that comes up with the idea of the Renaissance tonic. So, so her the whole time her mind is scrolling through what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Um, Greta, who has seen people die all around her all her life, um, perhaps feels I've seen this movie before. I know it ends with someone dying. There is nothing I can do except beg them not to leave me. And so she's the most sort of destroyed and helpless by it. Uh, Clodwig is almost catatonic in the scene, like he he's in shock in the scene. And then Dwight gives the reaction that is most, um, Dwight gives my reaction. That was very much a, the type of reaction that I had. Both of my parents have died. My dad died when, when he was quite young. And that was the reaction that I had uh, when he died I felt like there had to be something I could do, and my mind went to the stupid stuff. <laughs> um, like, wait, 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 wait! Shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't we, shouldn't we call someone? Shouldn't we uh, put a blanket on him? Shouldn't we uh, uh, elevate his feet? Like stupid stuff. That even if I, I knew even at the moment that wasn't the answer, but I could not stop myself from saying stupid things, and um, and so that's we gave that to Dwight that voice to Dwight, the one that is is just going to blabber the answers that he's heard or read and make suggestions that he knows are futile because he has no other way of coping. Um, then interestingly, he's the one that lands on the solution of the turtle in his hands, that maybe I can make a bargain um, with this with this creature. Uh, maybe I can get this creature who I've totally betrayed <laughs> um, and has no reason to to trust me anymore. But if 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 I can get through to this creature, that maybe uh, this creature can save, can work a miracle. Um, and 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 it's interesting that Dwight offers this moment of diplomacy. That's his thing, right? He's the one that can that can make the deal, uh, and that he offers this moment. He he makes this bargain that's coming straight from the center of his heart, and and that turtle just looks at him like whatever. <laughs> that turtle is not buying it, uh, but then does ultimately accept the deal. It's just by at that point, um, we don't need it anymore. Hexla has has saved Baldrick, uh, and that leaves you know the the glowing turtle in in Dwight's hand. So it was a really tricky uh, scene to put together. Um, and it has if if you look at the script, it's split into little mini scenes. Um, there's Dwight with the turtle. There's the witches on the sidelines who are talking about what they're seeing, um, like like almost like commentators. Uh, then there's Hexala and, and Greta right near Baldrick, but Hexala is in her own world. Uh, so it was a very um, tricky scene to to put together and a tricky one to shoot as well. Thanks for sharing that and being so open. Really appreciate it. That's a, a great answer. And yeah, it's a beautiful scene. Um, and then, of course, you also have Hexala and her reaction to that scene after all this fight choreography, you know, as an actress, Danielle. How do you ground yourself in reality for an emotional moment like that after so much 
like we were talking about, like Abby was saying, so much fun and play, and all of a sudden there's this stark reality right in front of you. Uh, because it was such a physical episode, um, it was already easy for me. Like my adrenaline was already going, my heart was already beating, as I was, I was already in touch with my internal world. And um, as an actress, I, I feel that when these emotions come freely, it's because there is sort of this like inner working and freedom that's happening. So even though it was a very stressful week because there were so many new elements that all of us were dealing with in this new environment and we had just gotten ourselves to Atlanta, were the hair pieces matching, was the shirt, was you know the turtle, all these, all these elements that could have taken us out. We were working with a completely new crew. And I remember there being moments of like, feeling like, am I going to have the emotional grounding and depth and vulnerability that I need with all this chaos going on? So there's this really beautiful moment, and this is a testament to the type of trust and family that we've created as actors, where I just needed to sit with Joel, and I just needed to be still with him and hold his hand and really just feel this love that Hexala and, and Danielle had for this person. So we went over to this bench and we sat down and I, he just sat with me and he just held my hand. And I remember this tidal wave of emotion just like starting to pour out of me. And it was such a moment that actually banked, took a photograph of it. And we have, have you guys seen that picture? Mm -hmm. I think I sent it yeah. to you, to Brian. There's yeah. this picture where we're and it's almost like American Gothic because he's got the little <laughs> hat on, the servant hat. And I'm sitting there holding his hand and it's we've got this pitchfork in the background. But I remember in that moment of that stillness, just remembering how much I surprisingly love this person so much that the one thing that I was after, this Renaissance tonic, wasn't even a question. This is Hexala's first moment of selfless, selflessness in the arc of the series where it didn't matter. I'll give him anything to save this person. Mm. And the tears were there. It was very easy to feel terrified and emotional. Mm. Pretty lucky to be working with this group of people, I think. Yeah. Um, thank you for uh, telling us about all of that. Um, all right. So lastly, because we're all in quarantine, I thought it'd be nice for all of us to talk about something new we've tried or discovered during our respective times at home. Yeah, I made a hit list. I love, I love um, being, I love my craft so much that I made a hit list of Oscar winning performances, like and the acting categories that I hadn't seen yet. And so I'm going through all of the greats that I've missed somehow over the years, because I think that'll make me a better performer. So I, I cannot wait to get to the end of it. I'm so I've loved what I've seen so far. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, I think for me, it's been taking the time to relax a little in the morning, do a little meditation and prayer, which normally I know I should be doing, but then I'm like, I got to get to my day. I've got 50,000 things and I got to keep working as an actor. Um, so the slowing down has been great. And I may just copy my frenemy Regana's thing. That's actually a really, a really insightful, cool thing to be doing during this time. Ours has been centered mostly around food. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Well, I, I have always I have always wanted to make tortillas. I, I don't know. This has been like a, a, one of those things on my bucket list. And so last night I made flour tortillas mm-hmm. uh, from scratch. And the night before that I made uh, corn tortillas. So that was that was a big thing. And then Leanne has also been just I, cooking up a storm. Yeah, yeah. We've been cooking a lot. I've learned how to make fresh pasta. I got a pasta maker. Oh, that's pasta. so good. It's so good. It's so oh, fun. Okay. And really not that hard but you do need the pasta maker otherwise you'll you'll spend all day rolling it the pasta maker is fantastic and super super fun so yeah we we've not been um elevating our our intellects at all we've just been making a lot of food (laughs) (laughs) which is what i do all the time as an italian i was so impressed with that pasta maker oh thank you it came from italy (laughs) perfect okay well that wraps it up for the season three premiere of dwight and shining armor the Sunken Kingdom, the behind-the-scenes podcast about everything Dwight. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you, Danielle. And thank you, Abby. You can follow Brian on Instagram at Brian underscore J underscore Adams. You can follow Leanne at Leanne H. Adams. You can follow Danielle at Danielle Bazzuti. And you can follow Abby Cobb at Abby Cobb. You can also follow the show at Dwight and Shining Armor. And you can follow me at the Josh Breslow. Tune in again next week for Season 3, Episode 2, Glimpse. Till then, I'm Josh Breslow. Thanks for listening. If you're quarantined on your own, reach out to some friends and discover something new about them. If you're lucky enough to be with loved ones, try something new together. An adventure at home, it might change your life. Dwight and Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom is written, edited, and hosted by Josh Breslow. Executive producers Leanne H. Adams and Brian J. Adams. Our studio engineer is Mike Schmidt. The theme song is composed by Christian Davis. And this podcast is recorded at the Comedy Store in West Hollywood.